When I was a kid, my family and I would go to the beach pretty regularly uh, as a part of our family trips. My grandfather lived down there, so we'd visit him. And, and one of the things we really looked forward to as a family going down there was to go onto the beach itself and, of course, go into the water. And now as kids, specifically, the thing we loved about going in the water was that we loved to ride the waves and dodge the waves as, as they were coming in. And the best time, of course, to ride the waves and dodge the waves was between the tides when the waves weren't too big or too small. But then some days we'd be bold and we'd dare to try and ride the waves and dodge the waves during high tide. During high tide, the water was deeper. The waves were higher and stronger. And I remember one time we were riding waves and dodging waves together in high tide and I thought I'd take a ride on one of these big waves during high tide. I took a ride on one. That wave took me and threw me down into the water so that I was twisted and turned like a washing machine. I managed to get on my feet and back up and out of the water. But just as soon as I did that, then another wave came and knocked me over back into the water again. Pretty soon I, I got back out again a little dazed and bewildered and bam, I got hit yet again. I'll never forget, I landed perfectly on the beach with that wave, just laying there face down in the sand going, what just happened? Well, I use this word picture for a reason. Because living in our culture today, with a certain worldview, particularly the Christian worldview, feels a little bit like being in the high tide waves that are banging away at you and you're losing your sense of where you are. You're bewildered. That's the nature of our culture today, with massive cultural changes going on around what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. We are in a lot of ways like sitting in the high tide of the giant waves of our time, being buffeted by them and left wondering what exactly is right and true. The next few weeks and months, the next 10 weeks, we're going to be entering the world of ethics together, Christian ethics in particular. And we're going to talk about what it means to live for, for God and to do life with other people with Christian ethics in light of what are really major tectonic shifts. And they might even be called, to use my analogy even further, tectonic shifts happening out in the water and sending major tsunamis that are blowing away everything that we have known in many ways. For example, we now live in a world where homosexual marriage is legal. California, just a few weeks ago, legalized euthanasia. And of course, the last six, nine months or year has been plagued by problems around racism in our time. These things are in some ways aren't going away and they keep coming back again and again to us. And it leaves us with the question, how are we as Christians to live in the midst of this? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to work with a Christian framework of how we live out the Christian life in the midst of this. What it means to be Christian with all of these shifts in our culture and our lives, even among real relationships we all have. And we're going to do it in three ways. We're going to talk about it with the framework of truth, of grace, and of love. Of truth, of grace, and of love. And today we dive headfirst into one of the most perplexing 
and lamentable issues in our culture that's been around for now decades, the issue of abortion. Just a few months ago, a secret video came out, a video of Planned Parenthood that many of you have probably heard about, maybe some of you have seen, where actual officials of Planned Parenthood discussed the sale of aborted fetus parts for profit. To say this was shocking for Christians like us, and dare I say even non-Christians in American life, is an understatement. Nonetheless, disturbing stuff like this leads us to ask, how does God view uh, the life of people like unborn children? How does God view the life of people like unborn children? And what do we do about that? Well, the first thing we're going to do today, if you might remember our kind of framework, is we're going to start with truth. We're going to start with the truth and get to grace and love. And first, the truth comes out in light of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is our text today, and and it is a psalm about how God knows us as people. David prays this psalm. He even sets it up to sing as a song about God knowing him, God knowing us, intimately and personally in every way. I mean, look at verse 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. These first verses, verses 1 through 6, are all about how God knows us. He is omniscient and knows everything about us, even things we don't know or don't see about ourselves. He knows everything about us. And yet, he's still engaged. The next verses, in verses 7 through 12 in this psalm, tell us that God is everywhere we go. He says, you know, basically, I go to this place, you're there. You go over here. Even when I try to hide in my darkness, you're there. I can't get away from you. The implication being that even when we want to hide in our brokenness, even when we want to hide in sin, God is still engaged with us because he knows us. He's omnipresent. Then we come to verses 13 through 18. This part of our psalm really strikes at the heart of the question of how does God and his word view the life of the unborn child? Well, listen to God's word and how it speaks to this very thing. It says in verse 13, You, that is God, formed my inward parts. You, that is God, knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Then in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to how God's word says some things here. It says uh, God forms, he knits, he sees, he makes a child. In other words, God is our creator in the womb. He is the one it all starts with with his plan and his power, working with the natural things that go on between men and women. The implication is simple. He knows us even as he is right there making us in the womb. Now, where we, what we, The beauty of this truth is simply this. Whether we're Christian or not, we believe God is the creator of all children in the wombs of people. 
Now, what I'm proposing to you today is what we call a high view of the human person, a high view of the unborn child. And it begins from the get-go at conception. In fact, Psalm 8 says this, that God made us a little lower than the angels. Don't think of that as a bad thing because angels are glorious beings, extraordinary beings according to Scripture. To be made just a little lower than means we're in the realm of extraordinary. What does C.S. Lewis says in The Way to Glory? If you were to really see a human being in their true glorified form, you and I would be tempted to worship them. That's how really glorious we're meant to be in our creation. Now, I say we talk about this glory and this high view of the human person, even the unborn child, because there are low views of human beings in our time. And the low views uh, come out like this. Some see the, the unborn child as a blob of cells until birth. Some see a child as ignorant and unthinking, less than human because they can't articulate what they think or think clearly about matters. In other words, the child in a low view is always less than human. But Scripture says something different, that humanity, personhood, dignity, all comes by the first truth that we're known by God. That's the thing that gives us dignity. That we're known in our creation by our Creator makes everything significant. And let me tell you why that matters to you and to me. Because that's the very core of what we long for in life. To be known and even loved for who we are. Now, there's a lot more to say about that. But that's the beauty of this doctrine of personhood, of dignity in our humanity. Now, in direct contrast to this view, high view of personhood comes the act of abortion, which is actually the opposite of knowing. In fact, it's, if you will, an unknowing of an unborn child. And you've got to ask, how did we get here? Why are we even talking about this? In some cases, that's what we might say. But you need to know, abortion's been around a long time. It's very true when pro-abortion people say it. It has been around a very long time. We have historical evidence that goes as far back as the 3rd century B.C. in China that it was done. The Romans actively allowed abortion and infanticide. Infanticide where you take the life of a child after it has been born by abandoning it or even just taking the life. Yet in the midst of these precedents in history, there have been many who spoke against abortion. Perhaps you've heard of Hippocrates. You know, the famed uh, early doctor who came up with the Hippocratic Oath that many of the docs, some of the docs in our congregation have agreed to in their form of ethics. Did you know that it was Hippocrates himself who came up with that oath and said, one of the aspects of that oath was, I will not cause an abortion. Hippocrates himself said that. Not to mention there are Jewish philosophers. Even early Christian, Christians in the early church, second century, make it very clear that there were many who held the view that actually abortion was against God's will. Jumping forward many millennia, 
to even our own time. Things changed in America back in the 1960s, the Cultural Revolution. In the 1960s with the Cultural Revolution, there came a, a real push for freedoms in every possible venue, including uh, whether a woman has a right to have a child or not. And starting in 1967, the very year I was born, there were actual laws being passed across states all over the United States uh, allowing abortion on demand. Finally, that came to a head in 1973 in the famous Roe v. Wade U.S. Supreme Court case where our own Supreme Court gave freedoms to have abortion on demand across our land. This is how we got here, at least historically speaking. Now we have to ask, in light of this historical milieu, what has God got to say about the unborn child? Well, let's go to the truth first, the very clear truth of Scripture first. We've already touched on it some about being known, but let me give you three biblical and three natural truths that really highlight and help us navigate through the waters that are coming at us to help dodge the waves and, yes, even know how to navigate through difficult ethical circumstances. The first truth is this. Genesis 1.26 says plainly that God created us that is, all human beings, male and female, in his image. Now, that imaging language is pretty profound in the book of Genesis. That says that there is something about mankind that's set apart from all the other animals that God created, all the other uh, living things that God created in our world. Psalm, uh, in fact, Psalm 139 echoes this as it talks about how we're created with knowing, imaging and knowing go together intimately. The implication being this, the unborn children are persons created with dignity, with as much dignity as a full-grown person. The image of God sets us apart. And what you'll find is that in some abortion circles where it's supported, the line between animals and children is often blurred or eradicated. Children are effectively no different than dogs, is what you'll hear in their very language. I can give you quotes if you want it. So when you run into this, that children are kind of fundamentally and less human, even the unborn is less human than, say, uh, the adult, when people say things is no different than a dog, you push back and you say, is that true? Who says that's true? Second truth, we believe that life and purpose for the child begins at conception. Think of the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 where God calls Jeremiah to become a prophet for him. You know when Jeremiah's call happened? It didn't happen when he was a grown man. Listen to this. Listen to what it says. It says, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. God creates us like, like Jeremiah in our womb with a purpose, with dignity from conception. And that's what we believe as Christians. And even a, a doctor from Harvard, I can give you a quote now, who wasn't, isn't necessarily a champion of the pro-life movement, said Dr. Ashley Montague says the following, the basic facts are simple. Life begins not at birth, 
but at conception. Life begins not at birth, but at conception. All attempts to blur the lines for when life begins to some later time starts messing with the dignity of the human person. Because once you move from conception as the place where life begins to out in time, where does it end? And who gets to decide where it ends? Third truth that's going on. Because unborn children are persons created with dignity at conception, we might understand why the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. We even said it a little earlier together from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's rule, if you will, on how we're to uh, interact with Him and each other in love. And there it says, thou shalt not kill or commit murder. But you need to understand something. When the commandments say, thou shalt not, you always have to go to the other side of what does it mean, thou shalt, then? Thou shalt not kill means thou shalt preserve life. Thou shalt preserve life. In fact, isn't that the impulse of many of us in so many circumstances? We would therefore say, as Christians, that taking life in the case of abortion, among other cases of, of taking lives uh, without due justice, is a sin. Taking the life of a child is violence against the child, the unborn child. You know what's interesting about that and really sad? Is that when we live in a culture where we do violence to our children, we don't realize how we're actually doing violence to ourselves, to our families, to so many environments. Violence becomes normal. The implication of the, these three biblical truths is clear. God creates us with a sanctity of human life. In fact, uh, one of the great heroes, or should I say, sheroes of our age culturally was a Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa was at the 1994 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. Uh, there at the time were a bunch of dignitaries, of course, from the highest end of American government, even around the world, as well as the then president, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and this little short woman who's like 5'2", maybe, gets up behind a podium, you could barely see her, and she stands before this really amazing crowd of power in America, and she began to say the following. She said, America has become a selfish nation. It's become a selfish nation. If America accepts that a mother can take the life of their own child, then how can we say to one another, don't kill another person? Even more, she went on to say, and this is the profound part of this little woman who runs all these little orphanages around the world, she said this, give me your children. I will take care of them. Sadly, we haven't taken her up on it. As sure as I say this, and as sure as Mother Teresa speaks with definitely a voice of integrity and authority regarding children. There will be some who say, you know what, in the end, who cares what Mother Teresa says and who cares what the Bible says? And this is what I would say, that 
I think there are even natural law arguments to those who would say, who cares? You can look at just common sense natural law arguments and find the truth about unborn children. And here's the first natural law argument I would submit to you that is, I think, true. That unborn children are human by virtue of just the medical facts. Did you know that uh, there's the sign of personhood even in a child from the earliest weeks of their lives? At 18 to 25 days after conception, there is a heartbeat in the child. Eight weeks into the pregnancy, the child has brain waves and fingerprints. Nine to ten weeks into the pregnancy, a child can squint, move its tongue, and yes, feel pain. At 16 weeks, well, that's when usually the mother can actually start to feel the baby moving around inside. All that going on before the mother ever feels the baby moving. You know what's crazy about this? Is that you go to one hospital and with the preemie units, uh, NICUs and things like that, they're doing everything they can to preserve the life of a child who's prematurely born. They're even taking care of the mother and the child proactively. You know, they even call the child a patient. And you go to another part of our culture, and that's not even happening with another doctor. The opposite is happening in what amounts to a grisly procedure. What's crazy-making is right now in modern medicine, they are doing procedures on children while they're in their mother's wombs. Do you see the schizophrenia of our culture and of us as a people as a whole? How do we live with that? The second natural truth that comes out of this is that some assume that children can be financial and lifestyle burdens. And everyone here who's had children can say, yep, it costs a lot to have a child. <laughs> well, I would say even more. There are poor women single mothers who have deathly fear about the fact they're having a child and it's an unwanted pregnancy and they're facing huge financial needs and have no idea what to do. I would concede that happens every day. And as a result, we tend to sometimes think that children, well, are just a throwaway part of life, that they're an option. But I want you to think about Something that in, instead of kids being options or even a problem, think about how they could be future contributors of our society. As of today, almost 60 million abortions have happened since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Guys, that is one-fifth of our population as a nation. One-fifth of our population doesn't exist And as a result, I would suggest to you, what if our economic, what if our social security, even some of our scientific problems in America have come because 60 million kids have been gone? Just think about it. We have 60 million less taxpayers. 
We have 60 million less children who could grow up, go to college, and maybe be the next person to participate in the cure of cancer. Children could make a difference in that way. Children can be contributors to society. Third truth about the dignity of an unborn child that is natural in its truth is that all of us here have a sense of oughtness. I don't care if you're a Christian or not about human life. When you drive by a car accident, don't you have a sense of, there, I hope somebody's being helped in this circumstance. Don't you have that? Don't you sometimes, if you're a Christian, pray for them? Isn't the impulse for even some of you who really care about people and know how to handle situations like that, park your car, get out, and go help, right? There is a sense of oughtness in every human being of the way things should be and how we handle life. Abortion squelches that sense of oughtness. It kills it off. And the scary thing is when you harden your hearts towards that sense of oughtness to preserve life, it affects all other areas of your life. The oughtness of preserving life really gets at the gospel for today. The gospel being that thou shalt preserve life is actually a call to celebrate life. I mean... When somebody announces they're having a baby, don't we typically go, praise God, a new life? The Bible has a great example of this first impulse towards the oughtness of life and of preserving it. And that example comes when the pregnant Mary, the mother of Jesus, shows up at her cousin Elizabeth's house and who, by the way, was also pregnant with John the Baptist, just a little further along in her pregnancy, how did Elizabeth and John in her womb respond to Mary and Jesus uh, arriving? Well, Elizabeth breaks out in a song, sings a song like, wow, this is great. The mother of my Lord has showed up. I can't wait for this day that he comes. And then the really cool thing is John the Baptist in the womb, not even born yet, starts doing somersaults because he's encountered Christ, who's also in the womb. In other words, John the Baptist was very human in his response to Christ. He celebrated life, and particularly that sense of wonder that Christ, the Son of God, became a man in the Incarnation. If there's anything that can convince us as Christians of the dignity of a life of a child, it has got to be Jesus in the womb. Jesus in the womb of Mary. That God would send his only son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in a woman? Man, that's a glorious moment for mankind. God has dignified us with his very presence in Christ who started out as a fetus. Now there's the truth. There's the truth that sets us free. But we need to talk about grace. 
Because the reality is, as we deal with the truth, we've got to get to the reality that we live in a broken world, and we too are broken when we talk about even the reality of abortion. Abortion is not a mere statistic. It's very personal. In fact, we believe that there are not just one, there's not just one victim of abortion. There are two victims, the child and the mother. In a room full of people this size, I know there's going to be people here who have either men and women, particularly, who have either experienced the problem of abortion, the real issue in their life, or know someone who has. There's usually a great deal of psychological and emotional fallout due to an abortion experience. The more secret it is, the more it gnaws at the soul. But here's the gospel for any who have experienced abortion. You ready for this? It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. Scripture says that the cross of Christ is so big, that Jesus is so majestic, even dying for our sin, that he covers things like abortion. He is willing and able to forgive anyone who calls on his name and comes clean with their need. Psalm 139, if you've had an abortion or somebody you know is having an abortion, is still true. He knows you. He is present. You can't get away from him because he loves you. He values you that much, even in your brokenness, that he would send his son to die. Man, if that's a love we're not used to, especially when we live in our guilt and our pain, we live in our denial. See, Jesus didn't just die for little white lies. He died for big stuff, killing, murder. He died for people who kill in fear with their words or even with their actions and taking a life. You know how I know that? Because Jesus died and redeemed guys like Moses, David, Paul the most prolific authors of Scripture. You know why that's significant? They all are murderers. If Jesus died for them, do you know what that means for you and for me? That means we can be forgiven for the darkest things we do. We can be forgiven in profound ways. I think of Jesus, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but of Jesus in John 8, where he meets this woman who's called in adultery. And at that time, she was called in adultery, and all these guys came to her and were accusing her and were ready to kill her because in their law, in that time, in Judea, they could stone her to death for having affairs and breaking up marriages. But how does Jesus respond to that? He says, do they condemn you after he shooed them away with profound truth? They said, she said, no. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think about that. The darkest things we do in our lives, and Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I died for that. Go and sin no more. Jesus is big enough to forgive those who fall prey to abortion. And here's the thing. I dare Christians here who, who really get mad 
at the assault of abortion to start to think that Jesus even died for abortion doctors. Okay, I know some of you that's like, okay, you've gone to meddling. But that's how big the cross is for you, for me, and for them. In short, Jesus offers forgiveness for anyone who would call on his name. He became a fetus to show us love, but God called him to show what real love was about by even dying for us in forgiveness. Now that brings us to the final piece. We've talked about truth and grace. Now let's quickly go through love. What does it mean to love in the face of abortion? Well, I'd submit to you that Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5 that we're to be salt and light in our world, the world we live in. We're to follow him and how we love people. And we're supposed to, according to John 17, uh, be in the world but not of it. What does that look like? Five quick applications for all of us to pray about, in some cases participate in, that would actually be expressions of love in the name of Jesus. And here's the first one. We as Christians are not to pull back in contempt and rage at our cultural demise. We don't do physical or verbal violence to people whenever uh, they are struggling to uphold abortion. No, instead we need to move from anger to tears. Like Jeremiah, we see the things that are so broken and yet weeping is where we want to land with the hard things that we see in life. That is the place before God that is holy, not just anger. Second, we need to take Leslie Newbigin's advice. He was a theologian in the 20th century. And this is what he said. Very often we think we're either for the world or against the world. But you know what he said? You say you've got to combine them. You've got to be for the world against the world. You've got to come up with strategies to subvert the world's ways. Being for the world, but subverting the way they do it, the way they do sin and worldliness. We have to be those who promote that. And what are ways we can be for the world, against the world? Well, the first thing is crisis pregnancy centers. You want to know how we can act as a church together around helping women who are struggling with unwanted pregnancies and really unclear about what the, the dignity of an unborn child is, get involved with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We are actively involved with the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Monroe. We're actively involved. In fact, I'm hoping and praying that we'll put together a team of guys who will go and help them build a facility to house all the diapers, clothes, food, uh, formula, all the things they have to collect through the years in order to take care of women who don't have the resources to go through the pregnancy and have the child. If you have questions about that, see Tim Brown. See our Mercy team. I think it would be great if we took a team and did that in the coming years. Second thing we can do is adoption. Adoption. There are lines of people waiting to get kids in our nation. That is a great way for us to be proactive and to actually help take care of kids and with women and couples who, for whatever reasons, have a hard time having another child. This is a great way to actually care for them. 
Fourth, um, and another way to... Oh, I've already done that. Fifth, and this is, the fi- this is the final thing, we also have to get connected with government. And this is what I mean. We need to be a prophetic voice to government. We need to influence with our vote, among other things. Maybe God will raise up some politicians from our midst to be an influence and voice for many things, even beyond abortion. But we need more of that in our culture. Let me be clear. The great mistake of the evangelical church over the last 30 years is this, that if we get our guy in office, that'll fix the, pro- the, the problem. Don't assume that. Don't assume that. We're just to go and call people to be Christian politicians just to be faithful. God will change things when he's good and ready. We can't force it with power just like the world and political agendas do in the conservatives and among the liberals. We're different in how we do politics. Finally, there is a great hope in the midst of all this. And the great hope is this. It's not in us. It's in a resurrection hope. A resurrection hope that there are millions of kids who have passed away in abortion over the last decades, and yet they will be singing with us in heaven one day, glorying in the Christ, lamenting the past, but glorying in the wonders of how God redeems even dark, dark things. That's the kind of hope we have to have, guys. We're going to a place where there'll be no more sickness, sorrows, or tears, no more abortion. And for now, our job is to be faithful in labor and love in Christ. Jesus calls us to a bigger life, to speak of his glory, and to dwell on our eternal future. Resurrection, hope, well, that's what gives us hope eternally. We are a people who believe in eternal God and eternal life. Let's be salt and light as people of the way, the truth, and the life, even with the unborn. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and all of us, this is a stirring subject for me, for everyone here to even listen. It can be painful, and we pray that in your Holy Spirit, you would stir us to think more deeply about what is true, what is gracious in the cross for any who come to you, in the face of abortion, and even what is love. We need your discipleship for that, Lord, because this is something we can make a difference with one life at a time. Mobilize us as a body, Lord, to love the least of these in our culture and even in our own midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.